Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 31 years, we have invited voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Patrick McGran was born and raised in Minneapolis, graduating from Breck High School and earning his master's degree from the University of Minnesota's Humphrey Institute. For the past 15 years, he has lived and worked around the world, creating projects and events for young people growing up in the midst of violence. He has partnered with the United Nations, the private sector, and local communities to build toy companies with Iraqi youth, to organize kite festivals in Darfuri refugee camps, and to coordinate skateboarding contests with Palestinian adolescents. Over the last three years, he has lived in Gaza City, where he taught in the Islamic University system after Hamas' takeover of the Gaza Strip, and where he led the rebuilding of the American International School in Gaza after it was bombed by Israeli and Palestinian forces. As the most visible American in Gaza, he was targeted for assassination by fundamentalists two days after the killing of Osama bin Laden, but he has remained in the Gazan community, committed to working with the next generation to overcome today's challenges. In his presentation, Playing for Peace in Gaza, he will share with us his unique and personal perspective on daily life among the Palestinian people. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Patrick McGran. Thank you. Um, it's the first time in a religious building in a long time, at least a religious building like this, so bear with me as I adjust. As the pastor said, my name is Patrick, and I will be speaking on Palestine today. I think if we're going to speak on Palestine, I think it's good to start by addressing that Palestine is a loaded term. I think there's a lot of fear, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the Middle East, especially Palestine. So I think it's probably especially appropriate to start out with a story about fear. Two years ago, I was in a car being driven to a fundamentalist compound by three Hamas security agents. On our way there, I remember, I recall not recognizing anything for 15 minutes. For the last 10 minutes of our journey, I remember not seeing anyone on the street. And for an area as dense and populated as Gaza, this was, this was strange. I remember thinking to myself in hindsight, I probably should be a little concerned. But, you know, an invitation for tea is an invitation for tea. And after a year in Gaza, I thought it was a calculated risk that I was willing to take. So we pull up to this compound with its high walls and thick doors and no windows. And I wait in the car as my three Hamas friends pound on the door. Two fundamentalist gentlemen answer the door, long Jalabia robes, full beards, steely glares. And I couldn't recall what they were saying since I was in the car, but I, I do sincerely remember them saying, American, American. They were a little nervous to start because I was coming from the country that drops the bombs. I should have been a little skeptical and was a little skeptical because they were the terrorists. At least that's what I'd been led to believe. So we sat down and had tea. Three Hamas officials, and I shouldn't say officials, three Hamas heavies, and three fundamentalists and me. And we slowly took a little bit of time to listen to what the other people had to say, and we started to get along. Now, as can kind of be foreseen, as soon as we let our guard down, that's when everything kind of went to hell, if I can say that. As soon as things started to relax, my friend Hamis says, Patrick, I'm so happy that you got to meet my uncles before they traveled. And so I ask, you know, being an inquisitive, polite Minnesotan, where are you guys traveling? 
And the eldest fundamentalist looks at me and he says, Yemen. And I get this big smile across my face. I said, you guys are going to Yemen. I'm going to Yemen too. Now, presumably, these fundamentalists weren't going to Yemen to organize a kite festival for young children in a refugee camp. Presumably, they were going for more traditional or conservative ends. I honestly don't know. But what I do know is looking across the table at three people who I had nothing in common with, I did see an unparalleled fear in their eyes of potentially crossing paths with me in Yemen and running into an American on vacation. So I share this not to belittle security or the clash of cultures, but simply to say, here I was on the outskirts of Gaza City in a compound with three supposed terrorists, three people who could closely be described as Al-Qaeda and me, and they were more concerned about me than I was about them. And this isn't so much that I've been a lot of things and done a lot of things and been around the block. No, it's, it's simply just to say they were as nervous as I was. And I think that's telling when we start to talk about the Middle East because there is a lot of fear. And I think it's helpful if we admit that there is a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, if anything, um, when I meet experts from the Middle East, uh, I think you kind of have to call a spade and spade and say, I'm certainly no expert when it comes to the Middle East. The only thing I've truly learned is to be skeptical when anyone introduces themselves as such. And I'm also not naive when it comes to the real risks. As the pastor introduced, um, this is actually the one-year anniversary when three Palestinians tried to kill me last year. Uh, as we've all seen in the news lately, uh, with the death of Osama bin Laden one year ago the other day, well, we're not the only ones who observe the death of Osama bin Laden. There are a lot of people who feel, I don't know, put down by the world and, and look for an icon, the likes of Osama bin Laden. There were three young men, 19 years old, who went after me. And thankfully, for me, there were 1.6 million Palestinians who looked out for me to make sure nothing bad would happen, and it really was not a big deal. And I share these not just to focus on the fear, but just to kind of discuss the elephant in the room that Palestine has a reputation, the Middle East has a reputation, and I'm here to say, well, it's good to address the fears and good to address the risks. Let us not let that stand in the way of, of exploring different opportunities to learn about people who happen to have a different perspective than we do, because here I was, evacuated from, from Gaza. The U.S. government forced me to leave. And it was, you know, my, uh, my head in the noose. Yet three weeks later, I snuck back in because I had work to do and I had friends to catch up with. I have every reason in the world to kind of be mad at the Middle East, but I love it because I've seen the good side. And that's what I kind of want to share with you today. One other thing I certainly want to clarify right off the right off the bat is, I have no political agenda here. I have no religious agenda. I think if we got into the specifics, most of you in this room would be incredibly shocked to find how little foundation I have in some of these issues. For me, I'm basically just a Minnesotan, raised a mile from here, but happened to end up in the Middle East. I'm a, I'm a very unlikely emissary of sorts. Um, but in a sense, that's advantageous as well. I don't know about the politics of the Middle East. I don't know about the religion. And frankly, I don't even really care. What I care about is connecting with the youth of the Middle East, and, and that's what I've done. So I speak to you all today with nothing more than an open heart and a quick outline of some of the points I want to deliver. But this is not me being politically calculating or religiously precise. This is just someone sharing what they've seen with their own eyes and communicated with their own friends in the Middle East. So I'm going to speak for a few minutes and share a few stories. And at the end, if you have any questions I can help with, perhaps we can learn together. But I come to continue the conversation today, not to end it. As the pastor said, I was born and raised in Minnesota. But just like the Westminster Forum, I could appreciate that there were a lot of other things to learn around the world. So as soon as I graduated from high school, I did begin 10, 15, dare I say even 20 years now of spending time in six countries, six continents around the world. I've worked with a handful of different organizations and foundations. And had some truly wonderful experiences throughout the developing world. And if there's one thing I learned, it's that you can't really anticipate what's going to happen. This happened in 2006, when I was back in the United States working with a partner of mine, helping a firm through bankruptcy. At the end of the day, we were able to save the firm, but we didn't feel right about profiting when so many other people had innocently lost money. So we decided to donate the money to charity, do something humanitarian. 
She asked me and she said, Patrick, what do you, uh, what do you care about? I said, I care about youth and conflict. And I asked her, I said, what do you care about? And she said, my grandfather was always partial to kites. So, unexpectedly, it fell to me to start a nonprofit toy company called Kite Gang. And in 2007, the year Darfur was on everybody's lips, I sent out 50 emails to 50 different humanitarian organizations operating in Central Africa, asking how we could help. I received one reply, one email saying if I ever happened to find myself on the Chad-Sudan border, I should come in and share a cup of coffee. Well, I think if there's one thing you learn in this type of work, you really don't receive a lot of gilded invitations. Uh, sometimes an invitation for coffee on the other side of the world is about as formal as it's going to get. So two days later, I was on a plane to Chad. Six months later, and 5,000 kites later, we had the Darfur Kite Festival. In the end, I kind of looked at it and said, is it ridiculous? Well, if you've got 100,000 kids in the middle of the desert who are getting food and medical attention, but are basically bored to death in the windiest place on earth, what else are you going to do? <laughs> and as perhaps the, the best compliment I've ever received in my life was from Doctors Without Borders in the same refugee camp that said, Patrick, you showing up here and organizing a kite festival is madness, brilliant madness. And so maybe some people would look at that in a pejorative light. Um, I took it as encouragement, and we moved on to another humanitarian crisis to see what we could add uh, with Iraqi refugees in the Middle East. I won't get into the specifics, but I'll simply just say I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of Christian, Sunni, and Shia youth that had fled Baghdad and were living in Amman under the radar. We started a toy company there, and we made kites, and we designed skateboards, and we carved yo-yos, and basically just got to know each other. And I was amazed at how easy it was to put sectarian divides beside us and just basically get to know each other, earn some money, have some fun. I learned a lot of other things as well. I was reading the paper one day, and one of my young Iraqi colleagues came up, and, and he pointed to the guy on the front page. And he said, that's my uncle. I sat down my coffee and I looked at the caption for that picture and it turned out this particular gentleman was one of the leaders of the insurrection against coalition forces at the time. I didn't want to push the issue too much because I knew the guys I was working, were working with were very nonviolent, but uh, I think I just resigned myself to understanding that the world is a lot smaller and a lot more nuanced than we sometimes like to believe. Similarly, I had a skateboarding meeting with an Iraqi friend of mine, and a skateboarding meeting turned into a cup of coffee, and a cup of coffee turned into a tea, and a tea turned into a dinner invitation. I said, Patrick, come over to my house for dinner with my parents. And I said, it's Thanksgiving, but Iraqi hospitality is renowned, so okay, I'll cancel my plans. And I went to Thanksgiving dinner with Saif and his family. Once again, unexpectedly, little did I know that Saif's father was actually a general for Saddam's Republican Guard, who was in hiding in Jordan. I don't want to get into the politics. I, I, I truly don't. I don't find that it's my useful role to play. I'll simply just say that if you take the time and go in with an open heart, you can truly uncover some fascinating conversations and learn some truly radical perspectives on things. For me, with the Iraqis, as with uh, the Sudanese from Darfur, I was just fortunate to meet a lot of wonderful people that had a lot to share. But things have a way of changing. And as happy as I was working with the Iraqis, the next month, the Israelis bomb a car in Gaza, the Gazans send some missiles back. Next thing you know, it's full on war. End of 2008, beginning of 2009. So a partner I had in, in Jordan says to me, Patrick, let's go to Palestine and check on the school that we built in the Gaza Strip. And this intrigued me. I had no connection to Palestine, but I th thought it was something that I'd want to see for myself. But first I went to the Iraqi refugees I was working with, and I said, would you guys mind if I take off for a couple months? And these young Iraqis who'd been through so much immediately said, of course, we not only want you to go, we insist that you go, and we insist that you take every toy we still have in storage that we've been making and give to the kids in Palestine. Now, who suffered more? Which different countries in the Middle East? Who's more deserving? I'm not going to get into that. I'll just simply say the magnanimity, if that's even a word, the generosity of the Iraqis was, was just as much as I've seen anywhere else in the world until I went to Palestine. But I did go to Palestine. It wasn't my first trip to the Holy Land. 2003, 
I was spending a little time on the Turkish-Iranian border and the Turkish-Syrian border. And afterwards, I caught a flight to Tel Aviv. And after being an American in that part of the world, when I landed in Tel Aviv, I was, I was kind of expecting a handshake and a cup of coffee. Instead, I was detained for four hours on the tarmac and threatened with deportation. Fair enough. I returned after my work with the Iraqis six years later and discovered that not much else had changed. Similarly, I was detained for four hours and I was only let into Israel on the caveat that I not visit anyone in the West Bank. Now, as some of you may and may not know, there are a lot of rules that are set up, some of them justifiably so, some of them more of an exaggeration, some of them for more nefarious ends. But I think it's kind of a hallmark in the Middle East that you don't observe all the rules, because if you do, you're really not going to get anything done. So of course I went to the West Bank, and of course I met wonderful people and on both sides of the border and, and had a wonderful time. But I'm not naive to the challenges that are there. My first project in the West Bank was doing all the digital mapping for Google mapping, navigation, in Gaza and the West Bank. So if any of you saw a recent 60 Minutes special on Christians in, in Bethlehem, I don't want to get into the specifics, but I'll simply just say on more levels than one, I can appreciate from my perspective that it's pretty much spot on. But once again, I've only spent a few months in, in the West Bank, so I'm really not qualified to speak on it at any length. Instead, I'll just simply say it's a tough situation, and I encourage you to check it out for yourselves. What I can speak on is Gaza. I continued on from Bethlehem and arrived at Gaza. And for those of you who might or might not know, I'll just be clear, you can't go to Gaza. Gaza is surrounded by Israel and Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea, and nobody wants you to go, except for perhaps the Palestinians themselves. I arrived at the border and was promptly told to get the hell out of there. And still after 24 hours of screaming and phone calls and petitions to go visit and review the $1 million we invested into a, a university in Gaza, we were finally let in. I don't think for that reason, but, but we were finally in. And I have to say I was immediately overcome with the energy in Gaza recovering from a war. I'm not going to get into who was right and who was wrong starting or continuing a war. I'll just simply say it was an extremely tough situation, but it was extremely wonderful to see Gaza rebounding from this adversity. I mean, to be frank, it's probably the most taken over place in the history of time. You name any power in Africa or Asia or Europe, and they've occupied Gaza at some point. And now, to this day, it is still occupied. There are a lot of people who would say it's technically not occupied because there aren't troops on the ground, but let me tell you a story. I, uh, I typically spend most of my Fridays in Gaza going for a mountain bike along the beach. Gaza's a, Friday is a holy day in Gaza. The weekend is Friday and Saturday, so I take the day off and just kind of enjoy the relaxation. I was biking one day in North Gaza along the beach, and all of a sudden the calm was disturbed by automatic weapons fire. I look out over the water, and 200 yards out, I see a Palestinian fishing boat getting strafed with weapons. I couldn't imagine why the fishing boat was getting shot at. It was only going about five knots. It was still two or three kilometers away from Israeli waters. But for whatever reason, who was ever on the trigger of that Israeli patrol boat, um, they were offending them to some degree. I finished my bike ride, I went home, and I got a text message later on in the day, and it, uh, it said that there was a Palestinian fisherman who had been killed in North Gaza. And I sat there on my sofa, and it kind of just recollected. That's the first time I think I've ever seen anyone get murdered in front of me. But at the end of the day, there are no investigation, there are no no repercussions, there are no war crimes. I mean, it's just another Palestinian fisherman. If anything, um, the fishermen just kind of get forced closer into the shore. I mean, to be totally honest with you, most of the fishing I see in Gaza is actually in the harbor. And if you can imagine if you're catching fish in the harbor, they're all about that big. You can still get fish in Gaza. They're brought in through a tunnel from Egypt. Kind of unexpected, kind of surreal for, a, for an area that's got 40 kilometers of coastline on the Mediterranean, but such are the realities of occupation. So this isn't so much against Israel or pro-Palestine or anything. It's just simply to say occupation is tough on the occupied and the occupier. It's just it's a perverse situation. And there are a lot of perverse situations in Gaza that I've witnessed. To say it's tough with the Palestinian fishing community. I think it's tougher for people who want to leave. Over my three years there, I can't even keep track of how many friends have had scholarships that they couldn't accept. Universities in Europe, universities in the United States, anywhere. People couldn't leave. 
And for this, I hold accountable the Israelis, the Egyptians, the Americans, pretty much everybody who just supports the system. It's just tough to be one of 1.6 million people, over half of which are young people who can't, can't leave. Things are, things are getting a little bit better, but they're still pretty messed up. And it's not just the people, it's also exports. Gaza used to have a wonderful economy that exported flowers all around the world. But now there are no, no planes land in Gaza. They don't allow boats to come in. No flatbed trucks leaving with commerce. Everything uh, with the Palestinian economy is kind of, kind of kept, at least in Gaza, is kept just, just above dismal. Now there are a lot of us, you know, who kind of do what we can. Okay? The, the church here is organizing uh, different crafts from the West Bank. When it comes to flowers, um, I certainly do my part and buy flowers for anybody I possibly can. The last time I was in, in Gaza for Valentine's Day, I purchased 250 bouquets of flowers. And it would have been great to send them to all my friends. Unfortunately, you can't send anything from Gaza. Uh, so, of course, I gave the 250 bouquets of flowers to friends in Gaza. And that's a whole other story for a whole other time. But needless to say, it ended well. And as fun as it would be full-time just to give away flowers to the young people in Gaza, I actually have to get some real work done at times as well. Um, I was in Gaza in 2010 when everybody was gearing up for the World Cup in South Africa. Soccer, the most popular pastime in the world, was gathering in South Africa, in the world's game. Uh, only people in Gaza couldn't go. Once again, it's under siege. So it was a wonderful collaboration we did partnering with the Palestinian community and a lot of local organizations and the United Nations to throw our own. So we were able to scramble up 16 teams from 16 different countries and 40,000 fans and had, had our own event. You know what, fine, if the world doesn't want us to join them, we'll, we'll do it our own way. Was it all easy? Absolutely not. But in the end, I think the only thing I was more shocked by was, the only thing more shocking than my inability to play soccer was just the, the generosity and the kindness of my Palestinian teammates. Me missing an open net, though, for the American team will scar me until the end of my days. <laughs> there are other things we'd do. I mean, obviously, I was there with a toy company, so we'd fly kites. We partnered with the United Nations when they broke the Guinness World Kite flying record for, for all kites flown in one day. I think the last record was 10 or 12,000 kids flying kites on the beach. It's pretty awesome. I remember looking at all the kids, though, and they were kind of all marshaled up. I mean, if you put 12,000 kids on the beach flying kites, it's kind of like herding cats. <laughs> and I remember going and talking to a couple of the kids and saying, you're sitting out here under the sun at your designated point for five hours, waiting to fly a kite for perhaps 10 minutes. Don't you feel like you're being taken advantage of for fundraising or for publicity or advocacy? And they said, Patrick, you just don't get it. We go through tougher things every day. At least this is different. So, Gaza just is a different place. Palestine just is a different place. But I think by working together, a lot of very unique and special things are possible. But it's not all easy. I remember talking to a colleague of mine three years ago and saying, you know, imagine, let's just get out of here. Let's go fly a kite today. Let's take, let's take the afternoon off. And granted, some of my kites are big, like automobile big. And I suggested, let's go up to the bluff up in Beit Hanun. It's beautiful, you can see all of North Gaza. And he said, Patrick, we can't fly kites there. I said, what do you mean? He said, we'll get shot. I said, we won't get shot. Majid, we're three kilometers away from the border. And I remember Majid has very dark skin. But during that conversation, it was, it was blank. It was white. He was petrified. He said there was absolutely no way he'd fly kites in North Gaza because we'd get killed. Um, so even though I talk about fun and wonderful things, I mean, I think there are certain realities that I have a responsibility to convey. Um, it's a tough place. It's a tough place, but the people are tough as well. So if there's anybody who's up for the challenge, it's them. There are other challenges in Gaza. I was brought to Gaza originally to do education as well as toy work. I will get political here for a second just because I think it's an interesting story. My first week in Gaza, I was invited to go to a commencement at the school that we had refurbished a few years before. And they said, Patrick, we don't know if this is a problem, but the Hamas Minister of Education will be coming to give the commencement address. Is this a problem for you? I said, uh, why? Like, is he scary? And they said, well, no, but you're an American, and he's from Hamas. And I said, well, what does he want to do? They said, well, he might want to have a, have a cup of tea and a chat. 
I said, well, I like tea, and I like chats. So we sat down together, and I listened to what he had to say, and he listened to what I had to say, and he said, Patrick, this is, this is wonderful. It's great to get to know you. It's great to get to know you to such a degree. Would you like to give the commencement address with me? Why the hell not? Sure. So that's how my first week in Gaza, I, I was speaking in front of 500 hardline Islamic graduates and their highly conservative and proud parents. Needless to say, no one was expecting to have an American address them that day. There were a lot of other unexpected things as well. Well, I gave a powerful sermon on the potential of cooperation between the West and the Middle East through dialogue and education. Um, I think my one understanding from that day is the realization that the master of ceremonies spoke very little English, and his translation of my remarks was not exactly accurate. <laughs> but would I do it again? Of course. It was a wonderful experience. I'd just translate myself. In any case, there are a lot of other things I could talk about. As I'm starting to run a little bit short on time, I'll simply just say, I did finish up giving that commencement address, and I did start teaching in the Islamic University system, and I did head up rebuilding the American school until a few people, I don't know, tried to strike back against America and I was forced to leave. But as is something you have to do in this part of the world, you just can't give up. So as I said, after I was forced to evacuate, after a couple youngsters tried to go after me, I came back three weeks on my own. And I started my latest project, Radio Free Gaza. I started this project because when I was teaching one day, a friend came up to me and he said, Patrick, you have to see this. You have to see this. I said, Ashraf, what do I have to see? And he said, you have to see this video clip. I was like, Ashraf, I don't have time for drone strikes or I don't have time for, you know, whatever the United States has done lately. I'm just, I'm, I have a busy day. He's like, you have to see it. So I sit down at his computer and I watch the YouTube clip to load. And what did I see? I, I didn't see anything political. I didn't see anything religious. I saw, I saw a concert hall. And I heard the music slowly start to come in over his computer speakers. And it was Yanni. I don't know how to describe his music. Yeah, I believe he's a pianist that makes elevator music. Um, maybe that's disrespectful, I don't know. I'm surprisingly naive on these things. But what I did discover from that one experience is that the Palestinians are really, really hard up for good music. <laughs> Western music, I should clarify. Western music, I should clarify. So, if I had an answer for the three fellows who kind of went after me, it was simply, hey, listen, you can like me, or you don't have to like me for being American, but if you're not going to like me, I want it to be, because you have an accurate impression on what the West is all about. So we're currently in the process of starting a public radio station, Radio Free Gaza, in Gaza, with the collaboration of the local community, because we want them to have a more accurate understanding of the West, and we feel it could be a good vehicle for the West to kind of understand more about the Middle East and not from the political elite, and not for the people we pay on all sides who have a vested interest in keeping the conflict going, just talking from the people. And I think I'll finish up here by saying, the question I get most often is, how can I do this? How can I be an American who sticks out like a sore thumb and start radio stations, and speak at commencement addresses, and organize soccer tournaments in the Gaza Strip? And there's just one story I want to share with you. Two weeks ago, I was in downtown Gaza City, catching a gypsy cab home. And the fellow driving me home turns and asks me, says, where am I from? And I say, America. Upon hearing this, he frowns and he pulls the car over. And he takes his shirt off. And I see down the right side of his body, he's got burn damage. This makes me sad. I ask him what happened, and he explained that he was the victim of an airstrike. I didn't get into the politics. I didn't ask him if he was doing something bad. I didn't ask him if he was an innocent bystander. I simply just expressed frustration that the conflict has gotten so widespread and that there's so much violence all around. He saw the empathy and he saw the sincerity in my eyes. And here we were, this rather tough guy from hands down the most militant refugee camp in North Gaza and me, a flag-waving American, and we were totally cool. The politics melted away, the religion melted away, and the conversation naturally moved on to women. <laughs> it, was, it was cool. So if there are any lingering questions on how a lot of this stuff is possible, I'll simply just say it all comes down to respect. Um, I'm the first one to admit there's a lot I don't know, and I don't want my remarks to be one-sided. It's simply just what I've experienced. 
over the last three years in Gaza and the five years in the Middle East. Um, but I will say that a lot is possible with the right attitude. So in conclusion, I hear a lot of people say a lot of things about the Middle East. I hear Newt Gingrich talk about an invented people, and it makes me think about my own country. I hear John Kerry come and speak about how all the misfortune that comes to Gaza is the Gazans' fault themselves. My role in all this is thinking if the Palestinians have to put up with such remarks, they might as well, they might as well get to hear some good music as well, because there's certainly more representative people than politicians when it comes to the United States. But I also hear things from the Gazans themselves. There's a famous quote that's referred to a lot in Palestine. It's from the founder of Israel, David Ben-Gurion. And it said, the old will die and the young will forget, in reference to Palestinians. So if there's one absolute truth I have to share today, it's this is not true. Some of my best friends in the world, some of the kindest people I know are Palestinian youths, and they don't forget anything. And the only thing better than their memory is their maturity. And I think if we approach them and other youth throughout the Middle East with respect and sincerity, I think you'd be amazed at how it's returned. And I hate to finish on an ominous note, but anything short of that, and I wish us all luck. My job is easy. I'll just try and empower the youth as much as I can, so if there's a legitimate opportunity for peace, they'll be able to take the most, make the most of the opportunity. But for the larger community and for the forum and for anybody else who happens to come across these remarks, I'll simply just say, go, get involved. I'm sure you'll have a wonderful time just as I have in the Middle East. Just talk to everybody, talk to all sides, and with luck we can move beyond these half measures that aren't doing anything and trying to get to a real solution. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick McGran. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is social entrepreneur Patrick McGran. We'll be taking questions for our guest speaker from the radio audience through Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is WestminsterTHF, and you can find us on Facebook at Westminster Town Hall Forum. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us here at Westminster for our next forum on Friday evening, June 15th at 7 p.m., when Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion will be our guest speaker. And now, Patrick McGran, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Patrick, this is actually a question from me uh, as the questions are coming forward. Last night, uh, excuse me, Tuesday night, about 15 or 20 Palestinian young people arrived here in Minneapolis as part of our Westminster Church Palestinian Art Festival. They're dancers. They'll be dancing tonight at the Women's Club in Minneapolis. And they're going to be with us for four or five days in this art festival. And uh, these are Muslim and Christian Palestinian young people, mostly teenagers. I was surprised uh, when they asked if they could go to the mall. Uh, <laughs> and they, they had a sense that uh, they wanted to experience American culture. They were not, they didn't show any animosity whatsoever. They wanted to dive in and uh, like teenagers anywhere, like young people anywhere, I suppose. Uh, is there animosity on a person to person level once you can set aside the politics? We hear the same thing in other parts of the world. The young people there, young people here, do they share a lot of similarities and uh, are they able to set aside the, some of the politics and just be together? Well, I think so. I mean, certainly when you're talking about retail politics, things get very, very complicated. And so just like youth anywhere, I'm sure when you're in a mall setting, there's quite a bit of controversy over who's got the latest fashion. But when it comes to politics, I think people are surprisingly flexible. Yeah, how do you financially support your work and yourself? 
<laughs> Good question. <laughs> That's from your parents. Yeah. And, and on issues of religion and politics in the Middle East, I think we've just come across the most complex issue. Um, it's, it's not easy doing this type of thing. Um, and you have to get creative for this type of stuff. Uh, I've received funding from the United Nations. I've received funding from the US government. I've received funding from people like yourselves. Uh, we get a little creative on different things and we have unorthodox partnerships. Uh, I'm probably the only person in the Middle East that gets support from a nonprofit beer company here in Minneapolis, Finnegan's. Um, we look for unorthodox partnerships to do unexpected things. If we lined up for the big donations, we have to put up with the big bureaucracy. And as you know, everybody's got an agenda in the Middle East, so we just try and avoid it. When it comes to Radio Free Gaza, we're not talking to any governments. We're just talking to people who want to support music. That's frankly just the the easiest way to focus on getting things done and avoiding all the, all the politics. And how are you personally able to come and go freely from Gaza? Carefully. <laughs> I have been told by the Israeli Defense Forces that I will never set foot in Gaza ever again, and then spent the following year coming and going through Israel. I was rejected outright from the Egyptian government of ever setting foot in Gaza. I was banned twice from Hamas and thrown out. Uh, it's just one of these things. You persevere, you state your case, you try and demonstrate that you have a value for the local community, and the local community supports you, and you move past the challenges. From one of the students at Perpich, what was it like to teach in the Islamic school? What did you teach? How were you received there? Teaching in the Islamic university system was probably one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. I shouldn't really get into how I got this position or <laughs> what was expected of me. Let's just say it was different. Uh, first off, all the classes are separated. Males in one class, females in the other. The buildings are separated. There's absolutely no interaction. So to be in such an environment with arguably no formal educational training, uh, it was fascinating. The first day I went in there and said, all right, what do you guys want to learn? And there was about five minutes of pause because no one in these classes had ever experienced such a question. It's always just rote memorization. It got to the point where I'd actually have to write lies on the chalkboard to get people to question what I was telling them. But in the end, I think we did work on critical thinking and we did have a lot of fun. And, you know, we had an event on public speaking and I showed them Steve Jobs, you know, quintessential commencement address to Stanford University. And they fell in love. So if you ever get the chance, to speak at a fundamentalist or an Islamic university, I highly encourage you to take the opportunity. It's fascinating. Have you had a chance to work with any children from Israeli settlements in your work in the Holy Land, putting kids from Palestinian communities with kids from the settlements? Is that possible? I think we could largely refer to this as normalization between Israel and Palestine. Um, I'm not even going to go as far as to say supporting the settlements because well, I don't think anything is impossible, I think that would be, I think that would be negligent. Um, but I think I'm going to answer this question in a certain way in saying half measures aren't going to do anything. Um, pen pals between Palestinian and Israelis, I don't think will do much. Um, picnics, I don't think will do much. I think we're at the point where things have gotten so difficult from short-sighted and short-term thinking from politicians on all sides, I think things have to be more drastic. I think, if anything, we should just call a spade a spade and saying getting, getting kids from settlements together with Palestinian kids it, it isn't going to do anything. There are, there are bigger challenges here at stake. I think, if anything, you've got to take the leaders of all sides and lock them into a room and tell them they're never getting out until they start operating in a more mature fashion. And, and just to be clear, that goes for most stakeholders in the United States as well. Um, Another question asked for some clarity. For those of us who have forgotten, what is Hamas and what does it represent? Mm -hmm. It's a very, very interesting question. Um, there are many different political factions in Palestine. Many of them started for various pragmatic reasons. Um, a lot of people even make the very eloquent 
um, justification that Hamas was actually started by Israel. Now, I won't get into that now. I will just simply say that Hamas is a political faction that started as a social welfare organization that did its best to support the community and is now struggling between militancy, the maturity and pragmatism required to govern, and its own self-interest. I, I will be returning to Gaza in two weeks, and so I probably better wrap things up there on that question. Let me just simply say that I think on all sides there are redeeming elements and there are more nefarious elements in pretty much every faction within Palestine and within Israel. I think the key is not blackballing people or saying we can't talk to anybody. I still don't understand as a government how we can encourage not talking to people. We talk to the Taliban, but we don't talk to Hamas. No, if anything, I think more dialogue and more understanding is kind of needed because I think the more light of day that are shown on different political parties, the more mature they have to be. So I'll take the safe answer and stop there. You, you spoke about how crowded Gaza is. Can you describe a neighborhood? Is there enough water? Is there access to food, to jobs, education? <laughs> how much time do you have? Let me put it this way. Um, I was, out, I was out playing poker with a couple friends on the beach two weeks ago. And since there were some, some conservative Muslims with us, we couldn't gamble. So we developed this point system to see whoever would finish first, whoever finished second, third, and fourth. And the way we did it on the drive back to Gaza City, there's one bridge you cross in Gaza, and you cross Wadi Gaza. And it's basically a river of sewage. I mean, beautiful, beautiful. Gaza, Gaza is absolutely beautiful on the Mediterranean, but public health and education, there are other very sincere challenges. So the way, the way we decided to stake our poker game was the first person who lost had to get out at the beginning of the bridge, which is a kilometer long, and walk the entire way. The second person who was forced out had to get out halfway across the bridge. The third person just at the end, and whoever won the poker game got to stay in the taxi the entire time and drive at 100 kilometers an hour over the bridge with their nose closed. So Gaza is a challenging place. I mean, I can get into the formal statistics and say, you know, it's 1.6 million people. It's one of the half dozen most densely populated areas in the world. I mean, imagine Singapore. <laughs> that gets blown up all the time. But the people are resilient, so even if there is 50% unemployment, and even if there is so much adversity, the people make the most of it. And I wouldn't live there for three years if it wasn't a, a fascinatingly redeeming place. Very, very, very difficult, but the people are tough. What does the U.S. government think of your work? <laughs> Which department? Um, I think I could probably safely say about 95% of the U.S. bureaucracy is probably incredibly uncomfortable with me being in Gaza. Um, when I returned after the U.S. government encouraged my evacuation, they were surprised, to say the least. Um, but then at the end of the day, the U.S. government pulled out a long time ago and has absolutely no representation in Gaza. So if I'm not there, who else is going to throw the Fourth of July party? So, well, there are a lot of risk-averse people who would probably wish that there was no interaction between Gaza, between Palestine and, and the West and the United States. I think there are a small number of hopeless romantics in the government that probably think what, what me and a handful of other Americans in Gaza are doing is pretty cool. I know the Palestinians like it. Has the U.S. government helped or hindered your work in Gaza at all? I have absolutely no comment on that. And uh, okay. if the U.S. government has any flexibility, either in the past or in the future towards some of my activities in Gaza, I offer my sincere thanks and wish them all the best. What languages do you speak and do you travel with an interpreter? Uh, you don't need to travel with an interpreter when you go to Palestine. Um, you can go to Palestine with absolutely no idea what you're doing and the kindness and the generosity of people who speak many more languages than America will be happy to take you under your wing. I've spent a lot of time in Latin America and so obviously I need to speak in Spanish and my Arabic is improving. There are a lot of my friends who won't allow me to speak in Arabic because I've learned most of it from taxi drivers and I think it's rather obscene, but <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying, and, and I encourage all of you to do the same. It's a beautiful language. And do the students you work with from Gaza, or the young people, talk to you about their personal fears? What kind of fears do they express, and are they hopeful? I think a lot of Palestinians are hopeful. Um, I came across two statistics lately that were very telling. One of them was 70% of Palestinian youth um, do not favor violence to resolve the conflict. 
Uh, there was another statistic, I think, that said 60 or 66% of the Israeli public is in favor with direct negotiations with Hamas and other groups that are known for their militancy. Um, so I think I and a lot of other people are hopeful that there is potential here. Um, but I think we also have to be realistic. Uh, a friend of mine told me something very telling the other day. He said, Patrick, you need to understand this. My life doesn't mean anything. The vast majority of Palestinians haven't even been born yet. So I think when we resolve and reconcile the determination of the Palestinians and the determination of the Jewish Israelis, uh, you start to understand that we need to have a longer term solution. But I think if we are able to find the leadership on both sides, leadership that needs to be elected, because right now I don't think there is legitimate leadership on any side to make any type of deal. If we got to that point, I think the people would support it. Working with young people is an honorable thing. This is from a student in the room. But do you find yourself getting attached to some of them? And if so, how do you cope when leaving them behind? I don't. I keep going back. Um, I've met a lot of wonderful people, and now it's pretty surreal. Uh, my Facebook is filled with you know, people from Chad, people from Iraq, people from Syria, people from Jordan, people from Gaza. So I don't let anybody go. I think that's one of the great things about social media these days is you can keep in touch. And thankfully, there are always different loopholes to slide back into some of these places so you can catch up in person. Yeah, it's something I'm not prepared to give up. Another question from a student. Have you thought about taking your work to Syria or other parts of the Middle East? <laughs> I was going to start a project in Damascus, and I was going to be working with a group of Lebanese nuns that have been doing some fantastic work with Iraqi refugees, and before that, anybody else who needed help. And we set everything up, and everything was wonderful until they kind of looked at me and they said, Patrick, we're trying our best here, but working with an American is just impossible. Uh, so I would love to go to Syria. I can't get into Syria now. Um, they've got bigger challenges than some of the psychosocial programming I do. But as we all know in the news every day, Syria is facing some very serious challenges, and I think all we can do is, especially in a venue like this, just pray and, and hope that cooler heads prevail. You were living in Gaza during the Arab Spring movement in the last year. Did you see any impact of that movement in Gaza? I did, and once again, since I will be returning to Gaza here in a few weeks, I'd rather not get into some of the specifics, but let me just say that there is as much passion and dedication for political reform in Gaza as there is in, in Palestine, as there is anywhere in, anywhere in the region. I think one thing that separates Palestine from the rest of the region is its youth aren't trying to overthrow the government, they're just trying to unify the government, because I think they understand if there's ever going to be a political settlement to some of these issues, there needs to be a unified government. <laughs> If the Palestinian Authority, which we back in the West Bank, were to cut a deal, no, no one would listen to it. It doesn't have any power. Its elections have expired, and, and they're just as tough as Hamas on cracking down a lot of these youth movements. So it's funny, you see, this, you see this debate about supporting Palestinians with U.S. taxpayer dollars, and a lot of us just kind of smirk with black humor, because and, and, we know a lot of those dollars just go to breaking up democracy movements in the West Bank. They, they go up to break, to break up, you know, civil rights movements. Um, so, so I have a light going on in the back of my head saying I should shut up now on this question. But uh, yeah, let's leave it there. Another question from a student. Do you think your experiences in the Middle East would have been different if you were a woman? What advice would you give to American women who want to travel in the Middle East? I think gender issues in the Middle East are incredibly important. I was having a coffee last year at Kappa Java in Bryn Mawr, and I was sitting next to two women having lunch. And they were being rather loud, and I know it's not very Minnesotan to interject myself in a conversation, but they were talking about how, how bad they felt for Middle Eastern women, you know, that some of them have to cover and how put down and how suppressed they are. And Maybe this is too much time out of the Midwest, I don't know, but I had to interrupt them and I had to say, I'm sorry, but I need to tell you, you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Because with all due respect to the women who've raised me and everybody else in, in the Midwest, some of the strongest women I've ever met are from the Mid Middle East. Uh, now with that said, should, since some people from Minneapolis, some, should some young women from Minneapolis just end up in Cairo or Damascus or Gaza and not expect for there to be an adjustment? Of course not. A lot of these areas are much more conservative than than what we're used to here. But I think with a little bit of an orientation, you'd be amazed at, at the role that women play in the region. Uh, I'm fascinated and, and inspired by it.
Can you, can you say a word about the condition for Palestinian Christians in Gaza? This is a sensitive issue, but I've never experienced as much heartbreak when somebody will come up to me on the street as a foreigner and they say, I just want to talk. And then they'll kind of get past the point after introductions and their perseverance. And I'll be like, why do you still want to talk to me? And they're like, well, we want to talk to you because you're Christian. I'll be like, but I'm not. <laughs> I hope that's not offensive to my parents. I really don't know what I am. Um, but the Christians in Gaza certainly know who they are. And, and I think it's five or 6,000 Christians left in Gaza. And for the most part, they're okay. Um, there's difficulty traveling between the West Bank and Gaza because you have to go through Israel. And the permit process is ridiculous, if not impossible. Um, I'm sure things are, are difficult for a lot of the Christians. Uh, I threw a heck of a Christmas party last year. We had a Santa come. We had 150 people exchange gifts. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think if I'm going to complain about something, I don't think it's going to be the difficulties that the Palestinian Christians face. I think it's just going to be the, the difficulties that the Palestinians face. I think for the most part, I think for the most part, there's a credible amount of solidarity. Uh, between the Christians and between the Muslims, and to a tremendous degree, a lot of Jews as well. I think if you saw, there was a, a recent 60 Minutes special on, um, on Christians in Bethlehem, and there were a lot of Christian groups that were really, really bummed about what was going on and expressing solidarity with, with a lot of Muslim organizations. So this is not an expertise that I have. I'll just simply say it's, it's beyond any different religious group. It's more, it's larger than that. Patrick, we don't have time for another question, but I just should note that some of the Perpich Arts High School students want to play music on Radio Free Gaza. And that concludes our uh, town hall forum with Patrick McGann. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.